Hey everyone, I know we've taken a couple weeks off, but we are going to get back into our study of the small catechism today, and uh, we'll begin. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And when it comes to the first commandment uh, in the large catechism, uh, Martin Luther actually writes that if we could somehow keep the first commandment, then we really should have no problem keeping any of the rest. Uh, but since we can't keep the first commandment, we really have no hope of keeping any of the rest. Because if we really loved God and his word more than anything else, then we would do what it says before we do what we want or what someone else wants. And then really none of the other commandments would be an issue for us. But the simple fact that we don't keep this first commandment, that, that by our nature we can't keep this first commandment, um, then really what it says is all the rest of them are going to be a problem too. There's just so much here to kind of unpack with the, the first commandment. And I think it starts off just in a general way. When it comes to the commandments, I think a lot of people view those as just simply well, it's God's big do or don't do list. Uh, in other words, this is kind of God sucking out all of the fun from, from life. That it is a list of the things that God wants us to do and the things that God doesn't want us to do. But is it, it isn't because God is trying to rob our lives of fun. Um, there's just a simple kind of level of morality that goes with these. Um, if uh, we have a society of people who don't murder, um, a society of people who are faithful to their husbands and their wives and, and um, you know, marriage is, is uh, something that is honored. Um, there's some peace and there's some stability and there's even some prosperity um, in, a, in a society. And, and Israel experienced that from time to time. And when there isn't, then there won't be. Um, and there's not. So I, I think there's a, a sense of that, no doubt. But I, I want to maybe kind of have you consider the commandments from not a different perspective, but maybe an additional perspective. And that is when it comes to the Ten Commandments, what we're going to see is that God is highlighting something that is so valuable to him, something that is so important to him, that he actually is going to bring it into the forefront and say, I'm going to put a hedge around it with a promise that when this thing is protected, um, it will be good for you. And when it is not protected, it will not be good for you. Um, and we'll see that in some very real ways with all of these things. So when it comes to the first commandment, what is it that God is trying to protect? It, it's not really that he's trying to protect himself. He, he doesn't need to protect himself. Um, when he says, I don't want you to have any other gods, what is he trying to protect? Essentially, he's really trying to protect his glory and his honor as being the one true God. And, and maybe if you're not a Christian and you're not even a religious person and you hear this, God says, I don't want you to have any other gods but me. Maybe that sounds petty to you. Uh, maybe it sounds like, you know, there's even a passage in the Bible where God himself says, I'm a jealous God. Um, I don't want you to worship someone or something else. I don't want you to call anyone or anything else your God. And, and maybe you look at that, and maybe we, even as Christians, we look at that sometimes and go, oh God, you know, that's petty. Jealousy, you're so above that. Why would you do that? Imagine that your son, your daughter, your kid, they, they go over and they, they spend the night or they spend the weekend at their best friend's house. 
You say, how, how was the weekend? And they say, it was the best. Billy's parents are the coolest parents in the world. They let him do this and they let him watch that and they let us go here and they took us to this place and all of those things that you said I could never do, um, they, they let me do those things. So much so, you know what? I'm not even gonna call you mom. Uh, you're not my dad anymore. I wanna go live with Billy and his parents. How would you react to that? I would hope you would say, I'm the one who birthed you. I'm the one who, who, who brought you into this world, taught you how to ride a bike, and we, we've sacrificed our lives so that you, you could have the life that you have. And now because of this one little thing, you want to take our name, you want to take the, the honor of being your mom and your dad, and you want to give it to someone else, you can't tell me that you wouldn't be jealous over that. that that's sort of what it's like. When God says, I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who gives you life. I'm the one who sustains your life. I'm the one who blesses your life. And, and now you've taken that glory, you've taken that honor that is mine as God alone, and you've given them to something or someone else. So yeah. God says, I don't want you to have any other gods. God says, I, I, I'm a jealous God. I want you to give me um, alone the glory and honor that is due my name. I, I'm the one who, who, who gives and does everything for you. And so for you to give my glory and honor to someone else, yeah, that, that's, that's going to be breaking the first commandment. We think of this word idolatry, right? Um, and, and maybe we've got kind of a narrow understanding of, of what it means to have an idol. Um, we, we picture something where somebody has an image made of gold or stone or something, uh, wood, and they're bowing down to it. And we say, yep, that's idolatry. And it is. Um, and, and in catechism class, we typically break it down into like open idolatry, and that's what that would be. Not that somebody necessarily does it out in the open, but... But if you would walk in and even in, into someone's house, you could see this is someone who bows down and worships to a God that is not the true God. That's out in the open. Probably one of the, the most famous you know, examples of that um, would be when Moses is coming back down Mount Sinai. He's got the two stone tablets in hand and, and the Israelites have convinced Aaron to take all of their jewelry, all of their gold and melt it down and make for them a God that they could then worship as the God who brought them out of out of slavery in Egypt. It's a preposterous idea, but, but Aaron does it, right? And, and Moses comes down and, and he says, I, I hear the, the sound of rejoicing and dancing. And, and he comes down and this is what he sees, open idolatry in, in just the most grotesque imaginable way. I don't know that there is a better example um, of preaching the law with all of its wrath and all of its justice then what Moses does with that golden calf and the Israelites who were hell-bent on worshiping it. Remember, he, he melts it down, he, he grinds it up into a powder, he scatters it over water, and he makes the Israelites drink it. And, and what an eye-opening image for what idolatry really does. Um, it might have even killed some of them from the inside out. And that's really what idolatry does. And now we're not just talking about open idolatry. You would say, well, I'm a Christian. I worship the one true God. I'm not an idolater. Um, John Calvin, who was a 16th century Swiss reformer, 
um, a little bit after the time of Martin Luther, um, had a line in, in his institutions which, which said something like, it, it's translated, but something like to the fact that, that basically our hearts are idle factories. That that's what they do, that's what they produce, that our very hearts create them. And they create them inside, in our hearts, when they fall in love with and worship the very things that God has given to us to be blessings in our lives. And if you wonder, well, okay, what is, what is kind of this secret idol in my life? It's really not that hard um, to figure out. What is the thing that you love more than God? And if you would say, well, nothing. I don't love anything more than God. Okay, well, then ask it from kind of a negative perspective. What is the thing that if, if it were taken from you, your life would just completely come undone? You would question whether or not you wanted to keep on living. You would question whether or not God was real, whether he actually loved you. I think probably one of those that, that I struggle with, and I think, um, you know, probably if they're honest with themselves, a lot of people do as well, is our own kids, right? Um, and, and the great irony of that, that we, we love our kids more than the God who gives them to us. And that isn't really something you can understand, I don't think, in, until you are a parent. I vividly remember as a kid, we would always have two kind of Christmases. We would have one in our home with my parents, and then we would have one later Christmas evening at my grandmother's house. And I remember I was so I was so much more excited to go have Christmas at my grandparents' house um, because I didn't know what any of those presents were. I was the kid who snooped around and, you know, went through my parents' closet and snuck up into the attic and out into the garage and found all my mom's hiding places. But here was the thing that I, I remember my mom and my dad asking me, you know, they would always have to remind me, and you still do this with kids, right? You open up a birthday present, a Christmas present, and you're staring at this thing, and you immediately have to tell your kids, go say thank you, right? And in that moment, no one else, nothing else exists but that thing that you love so much that you wanted so badly. And in that moment, it, you, you kind of realize, my, my kid loves this stupid toy more than they love me. The one who bought the thing, right? The one who gave it, I remember. Um, one Christmas, it, it being very clear to me, very evident, my parents made this known to me. You know, you act in such a way that you love this present more than you love your, your grandmother. And it's like, oh, that's so dumb. Of course I don't, right? I, I, would, I love my grandma more than this. But you look back on it and you go, you know what? I probably did, as shameful as it is to admit that. And now we're kind of in the reverse as parents where we look back on it and we see how petty it is when kids love stupid stuff more than the parents, the grandparents, who sacrificed to give them those things, you can kind of begin to understand when God says, I don't want you to even love your own children more than me. Because God is the one who gives us our kids. If I lost my child, if I lost my children, what would that do for how I view God? The God who gives it. Would I have kind of that Job-like like perspective? God gives and God takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I highly doubt it. And what do I reveal about myself in my heart? It's an idol factory. I have idols. I have things that I love more than God. Money, career, success, to be liked, to be loved, 
um, my house compared to my neighbors, um, all of these things that if they were gone tomorrow, you know, would I still be able to say, may the name of the Lord be praised? Or have I elevated those things in my life? The conclusion with all of the commandments ultimately is going to come back to this. We have failed. They ought to convict us. They ought to open up our hearts and say, I have sinned against my God. And the very first one says, I've sinned by, by giving your glory and honor as God alone to something or someone else. That's kind of the conclusion of the law perspective. What we always want to remind people when it comes to these commandments is that this shows for why we so desperately um, um, want and need who Jesus is and what he's done. Because we need a savior from our failures to keep these commandments, to be the people that God has made us to be. Um, and this is when we, we get into um, kind of the twofold work that is necessary that Jesus did as our savior when it comes to the commandments. And that is what we refer to typically as the active and passive obedience of Christ. Jesus really needed to do two things to kind of save us from our failures to keep God's law. And the first is what he does by actively obeying it. Jesus kept all of God's laws and commandments perfectly. He did love and honor God the Father more than anything else. And, and, and you see that time and time again. We just went through Holy Week. Um, and even in the throngs and the, the, the pangs of him wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? Not... Not my will be done, Father, but thy will be done. He wanted to do and carry out um, God's will first and foremost. Galatians chapter 4, uh, when the time fully came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. Jesus submits himself to live out the law and the, the, the commandments of God perfectly. Um, and so he loves um, and he honors and he glorifies his father um, more than anything else. But here's kind of the beauty of that when it comes to Jesus is what ultimately is it that God the Father sent Jesus to do? What is it that God wants Jesus to fulfill in fulfilling the commandments? It's ultimately to accomplish the salvation of sinners. What is Jesus allowed to have done to him? What is the, the passive obedience? He not only submits himself under the law of God to keep God's law perfectly, um, he ultimately now submits himself even to death itself. And we see that in, in Philippians chapter 2, right? Um, that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So all of those sins and failures that we have, the rebellion that we have against God, all of that, that racked up a bill that we were indebted now to God. And, and the blood of Jesus is the payment to redeem us from those sins. So, so Jesus kept the, the law perfectly, kept the first commandment. Um, and, and then he dies um, to, to, to remove the penalty for the times when we have failed to do it. And we need Jesus to do both of those things. And we need him to be both um, um, uh, our Savior in both of those ways. And so this is, uh, we're going to see that kind of every commandment is going to come back to this idea that yes, we have failed and that is the law. And we let that cut us and, and we let it open up and reveal who we are and what we've really done against our God. Um, but the good news and, and the gospel is, is that, that comfort of knowing um, that, that even my worst failures, even my, my, my biggest rebellions against God, even against the first commandment, um, Jesus has paid them in full. And he takes that perfect, holy, righteous status of never having sinned 
Um, and, and now 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us um, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus becomes our sin. He becomes guilty for us. He takes that punishment um, down to hell itself. And, and what happens now? That we might become the very righteousness of God. The thing that God created us to be, the thing that God commands us to be in Jesus and by faith in Jesus, God now says that's exactly what we are. So, first commandment, God protects his glory, his honor. He has every right to do so, just as we would as parents with our children. Um, and, and, and despite our rebellion and our, our hearts being idol factories and, and us worshiping and loving more than God, pretty much any great blessing that he puts into our lives, Here's Jesus, right? Jesus submits himself to the law. He keeps the first commandment perfectly in our place. He gives us that righteous status through faith because he has wiped it away in his very blood. Um, so hopefully that was just kind of a good review for you, a little longer than, like I said, most I intend to do. But I think that first one really just kind of sets the tone for the rest of them. Hoping to get out uh, about two of these a week. So there's the first commandment. Um, come back next time. We'll get into the second commandment. God's blessings on your week. Thank you.